This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. This show was first broadcast on September 1st, 2014. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, astronomy answers the big questions and toy death. But first up, here's the news. Want to taste narwhal cheese? A crowd-funded science project in the US promises to use synthetic biology to make creamy milk proteins similar to those made by those whales with a big tusk that looks like a unicorn horn. In fact, their techniques should let them make cheese based on milk proteins similar to those expressed by any kind of mammal, made by baker's yeast with extra genes. You could try tiger or kangaroo cheese. The team from the San Francisco Biohacker Lab's Counterculture and Biocurious put their project on Indiegogo as real vegan cheese, cruelty-free cheese made from real milk proteins that have never been near an animal. Other vegan cheeses aren't really cheese because they're made with milk substitutes like soy. The problem of lactose intolerance doesn't arise because they'll be making the casein milk proteins, but not the lactose. Instead, they'll mix their yeast-produced casein with vegetable fat and vegetable sugar to produce a milk substitute that will work well with traditional cheese-making processes. Traditionally, cheese is made from animal milk. The milk is fermented by bacteria to something like yogurt in a process that eats up the lactose milk sugar. And an enzyme, chymosin, from animal stomach rennet, or a synthetic equivalent, is used to precipitate the casein from the yogurt. Then agitation separates the solid curds from the liquid whey, then pressing and standing to get the rest of the whey to drain away. So, cheese is basically the milk protein casein and milk fat. If you can genetically engineer the baker's yeast used to make bread rise to also make casein, then you've already made most of your cheese. You just need to add a suitable vegetable fat to replace the milk fat. Is this yeast made with animal genes? No, the genes are made from scratch. They're not transferred from any animals. They're made to be very similar to the casein-making genes in the animals, but they're not the same genes. Will you be eating genetically engineered cheese? Well, technically, only the yeast is genetically engineered with the synthetic genes. 
The casein is separated from the yeast to make the cheese, so you don't ever eat any of the genetically modified yeast. Just like you don't have to eat cows to drink milk. Insulin, rennet and synthetic vanilla flavouring are made with yeast in a similar way. Baker's yeast feeds on sugars. Some people are not merely lactose intolerant, but allergic to all the proteins from cows. The team's original solution was to aim at copying human milk protein genes for making casein. Of course, some people who have no problem with the idea of eating cheese made from proteins expressed by yeast modified with synthetic genes find the idea of human milk-based cheese unpalatable. So they decided to make cow casein as well for the prudes. Then they heard that researchers were about to sequence the DNA of narwhals. Now, whales make a very thick, nutritiously creamy milk for their calves. So the team added narwhal cheese to its stretch goals. No narwhals will actually be milked. The project has just closed after raising over $37,000. This is enough for them to make the human, cow and narwhal caseins to make cheese. Once it's been done for three different mammals, there's no reason not to make cheese from all the exotic mammals. And I see this as a great way to create unique products that will appeal to more people than just a vegan cheese. I want to see over a dozen different species cheeses made available from aardvark to zebra. We could pick and choose the ones with the best flavours and nutrients without ever harming a single animal. The future of this project is vast because churning out cheese from big yeast bioreactors instead of from vast pastures of grazing cows could change the dairy industry. When it's scaled up, this could be a very cheap way to make nutritious cheese to feed the world even the vegans, without warming it with cow methane. You can find out more at realvegancheese.org. I'll embed the video at www.diffusionradio.com. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Ursula DeMarco is an associate professor at Macquarie University's Department of Physics and Astronomy and an ARC Future Fellow. Ursula is giving the Einstein Lecture at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney on September 12th. Her topic will be Pocket Astrophysics. I began by asking her, why did she become an astronomer? What else would you want to be when you're 10 years old? <laughs> my children want to be astronomers. Of course, they have my example. But uh, most of my children's friends want to become astronomers by now. <laughs> and how does astronomy relate to everyday life? You could argue that astronomy doesn't relate to everyday life because uh, it's stuff that happens out there very, very far from Earth. On the other hand, you could argue that astronomy is everyday life because Earth itself is a planet, and a planet is one of the topics, of course, that are studied by astrophysicists. Within this domain, of course, astronomy does impact our thinking because all of us think, I think, at least part of the time in, in, in their life about where we come from and where are we going to end up. And of course, these questions are fundamental uh, to human nature and as a result, very important in our, in our daily life. And how did you become an astronomer? I 
I've always wanted to be an astronomer. So I'm a little bit biased in that I was kind of a, a one trick pony. I wanted to study physics since I was very young and I did just that. Uh, when I got to enrolling into university, I uh, met somebody who was an astronomer. And so I decided that the special flavor of physics I wanted to pursue was astronomy. I studied uh, in London, at University College London, and did my bachelor there. And after that, right away, I went into my um, sort of graduate degrees and my PhD. After finishing my PhD, uh, while some of my colleagues decided they would pursue careers in industry, which pay a lot more, I stubbornly continued to want to be an astronomer and went on to a series of what we call postdoctoral research assistantships. They are short-term contracts that take you usually around the world quite a bit because there's not that many of them. And, you know, so the field is kind of open wide, worldwide. And I did effectively two such positions in Switzerland and uh, one back in London, actually. Uh, the one in Switzerland was at the uh, Polytechnic, which is uh, where Einstein both learned and worked. Uh, so that was kind of my first um, uh, coming close to Einstein's environments, although as a child, I actually, it was one of my childhood heroes as well. Uh, after London, I went to uh, New York City, where I was an employee at the American Museum of Natural History. And there I did research about half of the time and worked on uh, public projects, the other half, mostly teaching teachers, teaching students, giving tours, working on shows like uh, planetarium shows and documentaries. And after that, sometimes, you know, your life needs a change. And I looked for a job elsewhere and I found a position here in Australia. So the big questions, what does astronomy tell us about life? Well, unfortunately, at the moment, it tells us that life is just on Earth <laughs> because we just don't know enough. When I was born and when I was a child, we truly didn't know whether there were any other planets outside our solar system, let alone life. Of course, people have been previously thinking that if there is a, a solar system, there probably are others. But it wasn't until 1995 that we discovered or detected our first extrasolar planet, which was called 51 Pegasi. Since then, we have uh, detected a few more, in fact, a few thousands more. We have discovered that there's a lot of variety on the solar systems that we have outside our own. There are a lot of solar systems with very big Jupiter-like planets very close to the mother stars. And today, thanks to the space telescope Kepler, we also know that there are what we call super-Earths. So these are Earth-like uh, planets, just usually a bit more ma massive than Earth. And uh, what we're now intent in trying to find out is whether there are Earth-like planets in what we call the habitable zone. And that is a band around a star uh, where the temperature is just right to support liquid water. And the reason for that is that the life we know of is a water-based life. Some of us think that perhaps there are other forms of life. What if there are forms of life that do not uh, need water? Possibly this can happen, but of course, then you start going into the definition of what is life and what is not life and is a virus life. And of course, this become very tricky questions. And so I think the astronomers have decided to stick to what we know uh, and look for water-based life and look for planets that are in the habitable zone. And if those are found, when they're found, of course, we already know of some of them. The next step will be whether we can detect any signatures of life in the chemistry of the atmospheres of these planets. But that's going to be a way to go uh, a few more years to wait to, to detect that. 
There's been a few signs that there might have been life on Mars. Can you tell me a bit about those? Oh, yes. I think this is one of the most interesting discoveries of the last couple of decades, even more so than extrasolar planets. Personally, that's my opinion. Mars was thought to be a dry planet. And of course, it was not long ago that the two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, landed on Mars with the tools sufficient to tell them that some of the formations, some of the rocks there, must have developed in the presence of liquid water on the surface. So clearly it's dry now, but it wasn't always. So wherever there's water, we think there is life. If there's, you know, even, of course, that doesn't have to be intelligent life. It can be uh, bacterial life, slime molds. But it's highly likely that Mars has underground water today, underground liquid water today. And so it's not unlikely that within those water flows, there might be uh, some form of life. Another place in the solar system that might have life is Europa. Europa is uh, one of the giant moons of Jupiter. It has a very icy surface, about 20 kilometers or so thick. But underneath that, there's liquid water. And thanks to the pull of Jupiter, Europa and the other moons are quite warm. Considering they're far out in the solar system, they should be cool. But because of this forces of gravity effectively with Jupiter and, and tides, they actually are hotter than they should be. And wherever there's heat and water, again, we presume life exists. So I don't know if we'll find about that anytime soon, because you'd have to go there and drill 20 kilometers of ice, and that's not exactly easy to do. But the idea that even in our own solar system, life in the form of sort of small life, bacterial life, does already exist, is, is completely not outside of the realm of science. And wasn't there a meteorite that came from Mars that looked like it might have had something suggestive of life? Yes, there was a meteorite that came from Mars. We know that some of the meteorites on Earth come from Mars because of the trapped volatiles, so the, the bits of air trapped in little bubbles in the rocks tell you whether the atmosphere in that bubble is the one of Mars, which we know from uh, remote sensing. And this rock that was called ALH 84001 was carrying the kind of the little formations that look like bacteria would on Earth. So these are rock formations, are like fossils effectively. A little bit bigger than you'd expect on Earth, but who's to say what Martian bacteria look like? But unfortunately, the evidence in the end was inconclusive. So we don't know. It's possible, but it, there is no other experiment we can run on that rock that will tell us any more than we know now. So really, we just need to keep going to Mars, as we've been doing, to uh, drill further, to um, collect more samples, potentially, um, and perhaps something that will happen even within, uh, I'm not saying my lifetime, but maybe our children's lifetime, will be that there'll be a manned mission to Mars which will be more effective because, you know, humans can do things that robots can't do. Although, as one of my colleagues uh, a long time ago said, well, humans, unfortunately, have to come back. So you have to figure out a way to bring them back to Earth. Whereas, you know, robot, once you've done with your science with it, you're leaving it there. How do rocks from Mars become meteorites that can fall on the Earth? All uh, solar system planets and the sun are impacted by meteorites. And when an impact happens, usually stuff uh, is splashed out effectively outside the gravity of that planet. So it ends up going into inter interstellar space or inter interplanetary space. And it becomes just a piece there, which has usually an orbit that's a bit chaotic. That means it's not just in a nice circular orbit around the sun or around the planet. 
And if that happens, then there's a chance that this piece of rock will, will hit Earth. And it happens. Pluto looks like it's had a bit of a bad run. How can Pluto stop being a planet? Well, first of all, I don't understand why everybody thinks that being a planet is such a great thing. When Pluto got demoted, I was at the American Museum of Natural History, which happened to be the institution that started the whole process of demotion. And in fact, the whole debate was brought up into the public eye by an article in the New York Times um, that was simply stating that uh, Pluto's not a planet, at least in New York. And that was because the museum had decided that um, Pluto was not uh, uh, to be considered a planet based on several of its characteristics and had therefore not put it amongst the other planets in the display. And one little kid (laughs) noticed and when he noticed and told his mother, so it happened that a New York Times writer was there and so picked up the story as a kind of a cute little interesting story and clearly was a slow news day because it got on the first page of the New York Times that day. And from there on, the public became kind of uh, enamored with this demotion and, in fact, angered. And we used to get hate mail from six-year-olds that we had, you know, demoted this lovely little planet. Of course, the fact that it's called like the Pluto the dog didn't help. Now, why was it demoted and why does it even matter? So it was demoted because it's a characteristic. So it's orbit, the orbital inclination, its mass its composition are different from most of the other planets and closer to what we call Kuiper Belt system bodies. So it's simply a classification. Classifications are very important in the natural sciences because sometimes you don't know why things are the way they are, but to get to that answer, you want to put things in drawers or boxes or categories, and that categorization helps. So that's why you want to do a good categorization. So this is really the beginning and end of the story. But why was it so important? It was important because the type of debate that that was in the scientific community of whether or not to demote Pluto, whether or not Pluto is a planet, was a type of debate, in a simplified version maybe, but it was a type of debate that we have all the time. And so the public, even six-year-olds, could really see how science works, how there is no truth. You know, Pluto was a planet for, for a long time, and yet... Today, it's not a planet anymore. And it's not a mistake. It is just the way science works. We refine our conclusions. We refine our categorizations all the time. And that's how we make progress. It's not that the person of yesterday or the scientist of yesterday was wrong and the one of today is right. It's it's nothing to do with right or wrong. It's to do with improvement. And, um, and I think that if school children could be taught this, they will understand better that the teachers are not always right and that uh, the teachers should also uh, relax a little bit. Sometimes they don't know an answer, but that's fine. You know, it's about looking for the answer together. And I think that would improve the school system. It would improve our lives. It would improve the way we, we look for solutions to problems. And so this is truly an application of astrophysics to everyday life. When Pluto stopped being classified as a planet, it went through a couple of name changes before everyone was happy with the right way to classify it. So it was a planetoid for a while? Yes, here, I mean, we go into subtleties that are not necessarily... They might be useful to people who do planetary system formations, but 
for all intents and purposes, uh, now it's called the dwarf planet, right? So they had to settle on a name, and I'm sure there was some politics playing a role there too. But the fundamental thing is that today we understand that the Kuiper Belt is much richer than we thought before. Since the demotion of Pluto, actually, we did find other other bodies that are also spherical, meaning they, they're, they're massive enough that gravity has made them spherical rather than like bimply, like a potato. And so there are objects like Pluto that are more massive than Pluto. Now, if Pluto is a planet, then these other objects have an even stronger reason to be a planet. So we just understand things a lot better. And perhaps the fact that um, Pluto started the debate of how massive an object do you need to have to call it a planet or whether mass was at all a criterion is really interesting. And it has certainly already pushed forward the frontier of, uh, of a solar system exploration and solar system knowledge into having found more Pluto-like objects. What is the Kuiper Belt? The Kuiper Belt is a band, let's call it, of icy asteroids that surrounds the solar system. It's coplanar with the rest of the planets, more or less. And it has not much mass in it, just lots of bits. And certainly, somehow, it is there because of how our solar system formed. So its mass, its position, how far out it goes, the average size of the pieces, things like that is what we want to know because it gives us a clue as to what happened that led us to today's configuration of the solar system. Ursula DeMarco, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Associate Professor Ursula DeMarco talking about life off Earth and Pluto, no longer a planet. You can see Ursula speak at the Einstein Lecture at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney on the 12th of September. Go to ultimosciencefestival.com to book a seat. Ursula will be talking about how astronomy answers the big questions on Diffusion next week. Next up, the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, where I spoke with Nick Wishart, a.k.a. Agent Orange, founder of a band that modified children's electronic toys to make them into musical instruments. Toy death. You can hear the noise of the fair in the background. I began by asking Nick, what is toy death? Toy Def is a three-piece band that only uses kids' electronic toys for its instruments. So they've been modified using circuit bending to be amplified and to kind of extend their sonic capabilities. And what is circuit bending? Circuit bending is where you get an existing circuit, usually a sound, sound-based one so you can hear the results, and you, you kind of modify it or change it in a way it wasn't meant to be. So you kind of, you get some really crazy results out of it. And if people want to start in this sort of circuit bending for sound, how do you recommend they do that? There's plenty of stuff on the internet. If you just Google it, circuit bending, you'll come across lots of sites that give you a how-to. So what are you just basically opening the toys up and seeing how they work? Yes, basically you've got to open the toy. It's great that it's battery powered, so there's no, no kind of risk. And you just sort of start poking around in the circuit. Sometimes you're even just touching the toy while it's playing. And if you notice a change on a certain part of it, then you found a bend. And how did you get into this? How did you start circuit bending for sound? I, I wanted to make a band out of toys a long time ago. Suddenly when all the toys started getting really amazing 
sounds in them. I think there was a breakthrough in electronics, and then suddenly every toy had had sounds. And I thought, well, you could make a band. And then about five, after about five years of just playing them as they were, we discovered circuit bending, and and uh, haven't looked back since. <laughs> and if people want to experience your performances, where should they look? Just maybe go to our website, toydef.com. Also, if you sign up, find us on Facebook, then you'll find out when our gigs are on. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Nick Wishart of the band Toy Death. You can find Toy Death at toydeath.com and look on www.diffusionradio.com for video of one of their performances. Number 7 by Toy Death. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for photos, links and videos that go with this week's show. Look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to support the show directly. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Toy Death with Pretty in Pink. Toy Death have been working on these songs very hard, and we hope you enjoy them. Let's listen!
science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.